title of today's sermon is What's Love Got to Do With It? A little Tina Turner reference. If you're um, at least as old as me, um, I doubt my kids even have a clue who Tina Turner is. But um, I figured today, um, with it being Valentine's Day and, and the Feast of St. Valentine being an actual ancient church holiday, it might be fun to lean into this holiday a little bit this morning. Um, so with it being the love holiday, I thought it would be fun to share uh, the stage this morning with my beautiful and talented love of my life. Um, so Esther and I are going to actually, she's going to come up. I'm going to scoot just a little bit. Um, Esther and I are actually going to tag team um, this message, which really is only different uh, from a normal Sunday in that Esther can actually punch me um, when I tell embarrassing stories rather than just shoot me dirty looks um, like she normally does. <laughs> so please welcome my lovely and brilliant wife, Esther. You guys may be shocked to hear this, but we don't really celebrate Valentine's Day in our house. Chris has this really long spiel on how it's the one day a year when our consumption in America of chocolate and roses outpaces what we can produce within our own borders, so we have to import chocolate and roses from nations where people are basically enslaved so that we can celebrate a virtue that really should be celebrated every single day of the year. And don't get me started on blood diamonds, because that's a whole other thing. It's a really great lecture, I promise, and one you should ask him about. And when you have some time, just make sure you have about 45 minutes to spare. Um, but for me, the idea of Valentine's Day has always been a little difficult because it's hard to celebrate the horrific death of a man who simply wanted to see fo people follow God in the gift of marriage. According to church history, which is admittedly a little spotty in the third century, Valentine was a priest somewhere around 250 to 270 A.D. He subverted a law in the Roman Empire that forbade soldiers from marrying. The emperor at the time, Claudius the Cruel, believed that soldiers were much more useful if they didn't have a wife and kids to worry about. So this led him to outlaw marriage among Roman soldiers. Ironically, unlike many of his predecessors, Claudius did not seem to be bent on martyring Christians, them, Christians themselves. He really just didn't like marriage. He felt, or Valentine felt convicted that this law was wrong and that marriage was a holy gift from God, so he began to secretly perform wedding ceremonies for soldiers. Now, Valentine seems to at one point have been a, had a benefactor who was an aristocrat named Asterius, and Asterius had a daughter who had gone blind. Valentine prayed for the girl, and her sight was restored. And this is one of the miracles that led the Catholic Church, which at the time was just the church, to Saint Father Valentine. Valentine developed a deep relationship with the daughter of his benefactor and with the entire family. In fact, it was because of Valentine's prayer, love, and concern for them that Asterius and his family all became Christians. Unfortunately, though, this seems to have brought Valentine into the limelight just a little bit. And because of this, his secret weddings were discovered. He was arrested, tortured, tried, and sentenced to be beaten, stoned, and finally beheaded. Because, you know, two beatings and a stoning are never enough. In the final, final moments before his sentence was to be carried out from his cell, Valentine is said to have written a note to the girl whose sight he had restored, and he signed it simply, From Your Valentine. And from that happy-go-lucky story, we've built an entire holiday based on romance. 
But even though my husband rebels against Valentine's Day for social justice reasons, and I get far too caught up in the history of the man Valentine to feel very romantic at all, make no mistake, February the 14th is a big day in our house. You see, February the 14th, 2010, represents a day when God showed his love for our family, and especially for me, by gifting us with a little boy. Now, if you've never met Isaac or heard any stories about him, then you've probably never really laughed as hard as you can. You see, from the moment he began crawling around and his older brother Matthew taught him to innocently crawl across the floor and untie other people's shoes while smiling innocently at them, Isaac has specialized in bringing laughter and joy, and if we're honest, honoriness to everyone around him. But the real beauty of Isaac's birth rests in the fact that seven years before he was born, God had promised me that he would give us an Isaac, and that he would bring laughter back into our family. You see, the name Isaac means laughter. And the seven years between that promise and February the 14th of 2010 were filled with immense hurt and pain, but eventually and slowly healing, anticipation, and joy. But the thing that stands out most from that season is the way that I learned love, not just as a feeling or as an action, but as a foundation for all of life. So let me start by saying, even though um, I don't like Valentine's uh, as a romantic holiday per se, that doesn't mean that I'm not romantic. I'm actually the sappy one in our relationship. Um, I, I've always written Esther poetry for our entire relationship, and she keeps them all um, in this ominous box in our house um, that I live in constant fear that someone's going to discover um, and embarrass me endlessly. Um, some of my poetry is really bad, and especially when we were younger, man, I just poured out some some Hallmark card-worthy sappiness. Um, in fact, Esther threatened that if I wasn't nice in this sermon, that she was going to pull out a couple and read them to everybody. So um, I will be nothing but sweet to my beautiful wife uh, this morning. Um, love is a difficult thing to talk about. Um, this is partially because we talk about it so much that we have a tendency to use the word love as though everyone knows exactly what we're talking about. When in fact, a lot of times we say love um, to someone, they hear something completely different. They have a totally different understanding of that word. For instance, according to the English language, love is an emotion we fall uncontrollably into. But it's also an action we choose to exercise with a force of will. So both an emotion and an action. And not only is this dichotomy seemingly mutually exclusive, but the binary parts themselves are very broad. As an emotion, we use love to speak of this deep and passionate connection we feel to another human that makes us act completely irrationally, even to the point that we might feel we can't breathe without them. In fact, I think it's ironic that St. Valentine is the patron saint of lovers uh, because um, he was secretly marrying people that the emperor had forbidden to be married. But he's also the patron saint, patron saint of epileptics, and nothing feels as out of control and almost epileptic as being in love at times. But not only uh, does the emotion of love define the way we fall into this passionate relationship, it also defines the way we feel about our favorite burger joint. We might say, man, I love their their burgers, or maybe the way we feel about our friend's shoe. Dude, I love those kicks. Um, so, yeah, not helpful that this we use the same word 
to talk about the person we would die for and the burger that we can't wait to sink our teeth into. And when we speak of love as an action, it's not much clearer. We say that we love our enemy um, because love is not a feeling, it's a choice. It's something we can choose to do. It's an action. So even if we don't like somebody, we can still love them. But not only is it this action we can choose to do, but it's, it's something we can make. We can make love. And that's something we're certainly not going to talk about on a Sunday morning at church. But when Esther says that we learn to love as the foundation of all of life, we're talking about our deep human design. I'm sure you've heard me say many times that God looked down at a perfect man in a perfect, sinless environment who had a perfect, unbroken relationship with his creator. And into this perfection, God said, this is not good. This is not good. Something in our deepest, uh, not damaged by sin, but truest and deepest design connects us to other people. We are coded for connection. We have this tendency to think, as long as I have God, I have everything. If, if, uh, if, I, if, I, if it's just me and God against the world, we'd make it. That is not true. If it was just you and God, um, God would look down and say, this is not good. It's not good for man to be alone. He wants us to be connected to other humans. In fact, just a funny little piece of evidence. This picture, um, can you guess what all four of these pictures have in common? The polar bear, the tiger, the horse, the human. What they have in common is that every animal on that slide is one year old. Now, if you are guessing which creature is least equipped to survive independently, which one would you guess? And I'm not even talking about emotional fulfillment. I'm talking about mere survival. If you were to guess the species that was designed to live interdependently with others of its kind, which one of those creatures would you pick? God simply did not give us the tools it would require to live alone. If you look at that picture, every single one of those animals is more than equipped at one year in to not only survive but thrive, except for the human. If you walked away from that human right now, it might survive a couple days. God did not create us to be alone. We are forced by our own frailty to live in deep connection with other humans for years and years before we can even consider the independent thing. And I don't think that this is by accident. We were simply not created to be alone. So when we say that we learn to love as the foundation of all life, we're talking about the very way that we're coded to function successfully as humans. We were wired for this thing called love. Not just an emotion we feel or an action we commit, but the very fabric of our original Design. One of the things that I'm sure you've heard Chris say multiple times is that we're called to love God and love people. It's a seemingly simple statement, and it's one of the foundational beliefs here at Open Table. Chris often jokes that he'll move on to Christianity 201 when he finally passes 101. But right now, his hands are full with learning to love God and love people. You see, we get that little statement from Mark 12, 29 to 31, which reads like this. Jesus replied, 
the most important commandment is this. Listen, O Israel, the Lord our God is the one and only Lord. And you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. The second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. No other commandment is greater than these. Now, over the past couple thousand years, there's been very much debate and disagreement over exactly how this verse is supposed to be lived out and even what it means. But this morning, I want to look at it in just a little bit different light than maybe we normally would. Because I can't help but wonder, what if there is something more here for us than to simply love God and love others? What if as we dig into this seemingly elementary concept, we find more? What if Jesus gave us these simple commands because he knew we could spend our entire lives leaning into these two statements and still never, ever find the bottom of his unending love for us? This week, as I mulled over these three verses, verses that I probably memorized before I even started school, I was struck by the order in which Jesus laid out what he claims is the summation of the entire Torah. First, he tells us to learn to love him with everything that we are, our bodies, our emotions, our intellect. And then he tells us to love our neighbors in the same way we love ourselves. I believe there's something very important about the specific structure of this command that I want to lay out just a little bit, and then I'll allow Chris to dissect and expand on my thoughts. This week, as I dove into this passage that Chris assigned me, I was struck by something I'd never spent much time thinking about. In the beginning of these verses, I'm in the beginning of these verses. I probably am keyed into this just a little bit more than I normally would be because I just finished reading through the Old Testament law. But listen to the beginning of this passage again. Jesus replied, "The most important commandment is this: Listen, O Israel, the Lord our God is the one and only Lord." You see, this passage falls in the midst of the frantic activity of Jesus' final week before he goes to the cross. And as we read these passages, the religious leaders seem desperate to find a way to trap Jesus. Throughout the Gospels, they question Jesus' theology, often, I think, just trying to co-opt his popularity to their team. But this final week, the gloves came off and they were trying really hard to fully discredit Jesus. You see, the problem is they needed to get rid of him before his message completely toppled the delicate balance of power that they had created. The Jewish leaders survived because the common people believed that they needed the Jewish leaders to have any access to God and to his holiness. This gave the leaders a great deal of power. So Jesus' willingness to not only spend time with the rejects, the castoffs, the unclean and the undesirables, but even more the way he constantly reinforced their intrinsic value made him dangerous. The Jewish leaders survived on being separate and set apart from the common people. All of their power hinged on that elevated position, and Jesus didn't function anywhere near that same way. He had this unique way to prove his closeness to God by doing incredible signs and wonders that validated his separateness. But rather than leveraging that distinct, distinction, Jesus instead ate and drank with sinners, and he touched unclean people, and he washed feet. The idea that someone who has access to God was also accessible was brand new, and it was completely subversive. So into this highly charged, revolutionary environment that Jesus' ministry style had created, he speaks of the greatest of commands. And with this single statement, Jesus calls the religious leaders back to the Torah. 
This is so important because Jesus was reminding them that his accessibility to the ordinary ragamuffins wasn't a new thing. God's intention for the Torah was always accessibility. From the very beginning, the law was meant to show them that God's desire was for him to live among them and to love them and to have a relationship with them. Jesus started that that statement about the the greatest of commands with what's called the Shema Yisrael, which is the Oh Hero Israel, the Lord our God is one. This is a prayer. So this for Jesus to make this statement, to open up his his list, if you will, of the greatest commands with the Shema was like us starting a statement with our Father who art in heaven. Like it, it would have immediately triggered in the Jewish leaders where he was going with this. See, in the Garden of Eden, God dictated that what was good and evil. And this allowed for a space where God could live amongst humanity without his holiness consuming the people that he loved. He was the one who dictated for Adam and Eve, for the only humans, what was good and what was evil. When the humans decided to choose for themselves what was good and evil. Uh, this closeness between God and people was broken. Humans no longer walked closely with God. In fact, they also began to abuse each other, literally not even one generation away from the original fruit um, that brought sin into the world. The first murder occurs. People were no longer connected to God. They're now in full abuse of other humans. So when God gave a Torah to Israel, uh, it was meant to create a space where God could uh, be among his people in close fellowship again. See, God's desire was always to be with his people, uh, but close uh, in close fellowship, um, it would be dangerous to do that. Uh, so one of the great kind of revelations of the Exodus story is the way that God's people could not endure God's glory uh, when when the when the glory of God came down the mountain, the people they had been prepared. Moses had told them, "We're going to go to the mountain and see God." And the people were excited about it. And as soon as His glory came down, they fled. And they say, "Moses, don't don't let us go. You go talk to God and come back and tell us what He says." One of the greatest revelations is that even God's people couldn't endure His glory. So God laid out for them ways to not only um, create a holy or set apart, the word holy means set apart, a holy or set apart, completely unique space where God and humans could interact. Um, first, this was through worship. Uh, this included festivals and offerings and rituals, ways for humans to interact with God and to worship God. The second way this holy space was created um, was by the, God's ordained way that humans should treat other humans. Um, this means the Torah is full of justice and mercy and compassion for fellow humans. Some of it is incredibly mundane, like how you properly borrow an ox from somebody and how to see to it that if you um, catch something contagious, you don't spread it to other people, um, all the way down to ways that you make sure selling and buying in the marketplace is fair for everybody, the Torah is full of ways to love God and love people. And most beautifully built into the system is a way to fix the space between God and humans when something goes wrong. God wove into his Torah everything from 
ways to isolate if you need to, if you're ceremonially unclean, to ways to atone for sin when you completely mess up. God in his grace not only gave the way to holiness or separateness or set apartness, but a way back to holiness when you blow it. So in other words, God, all the way back to Mount Sinai, because he wanted to walk with his people, called his people to learn to love both God and people. Like no other God, Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, had given his people a manual that would allow God to be holy, but also to be accessible. This understanding of Torah has got, had gotten lost, and I think when Jesus answered this question about what is the greatest commandment, he was reminding his listeners that his way, Jesus' way of living, both holy and accessible, wasn't a new thing. He was simply living a life of Torah. So Jesus not only answered their question about the greatest commandment, he also simplified all of Torah into one action. Learn to love. All through the Torah, God told the Israelites to write the words of Torah on their clothes, to tell them to their kids and to speak them over meals and to tell the story over and over at their festivals. David said he meditated on God's words day and night. They weren't just rules to obey. They were concepts. To be figured out, ways to draw us into relationship with him. They were supposed to be studied and learned. Torah meant they were supposed to learn, spend their lives learning to love. Now, I think it's really important, and I think the order that Jesus gives us here is likely just as important. First, we have to learn to love God with everything in us. I believe that as our love for God grows and we begin to care about the things that he cares about, especially the way he cares about people, we begin to better ourselves. But there's a catch. Jesus said that the metric we're to use to know if we have enough love for others is to love them as much as we love ourselves. So if this metric is true, then the only way to increase our capacity for loving others is to also increase our capacity of love for ourselves. How many of us skip right over that part about loving others As we love ourselves, we tend to stress the love God and the love people part without remembering that we, too, are people. I think Jesus was trying to remind us all that the only way that we can truly love others is if we truly learn to love ourselves. And the only way that we can learn to love ourselves is if we spend time and energy learning to love God. So what's that look like? Um, The clearest picture we have, of course, is 1 Corinthians 13, uh, that passage that goes in 75% of all wedding ceremonies. Um, And this chapter not only greatly stresses the all-encompassing importance of love, but it also paints the best picture of what love looks like in the Scripture. And it reads like this. Love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. It is not irritable, and it keeps no record of being wronged. It does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up, never loses faith, is always hopeful, and endures through every circumstance. I actually spent quite a bit of time this week translating this entire passage from Greek. Um, And there's a few really fun Greek words that shed some light on, on the English words we use. Uh, And I don't want to bog down a long time on that, but I did want to share a couple. 
Um, the word patient, uh, in, when it says love is patient in the Greek, is the word makrothemeo, makrothemeo, which uh, is a compound word that literally means long breath. And if, uh, as if love requires us to occasionally go, doesn't that feel like what it takes when you have to have patience? Like, just breathe. Just breathe. Love is a long breath. Uh, the word irritable, when it says love is not irritable, um, is the Greek word paraoxuno. Peroxo, peroxuno. Peroxuno. Um, which is made up of two Greek words. One that means alongside or on the edge of. And the other means acid. It's the Greek word for acid. So in the Greek, the word irritable means to sit right on the edge of acid. Anybody know someone who is uh, paroxuno, right on the edge of acid all the time? So there's some there's some fun stuff, but not not necessarily illuminating. Irritable works, patient works. Um, what I do want to draw our attention to is the side of love that I think we sometimes miss. Um, and to get there, I want to look at a little bit of Jewish philosophy. While uh, secular philosophers were trying to figure out and sort out metaphysics and epistemology and ways to determine what is objectively true and what is purely subjective, Jewish philosophers were trying to understand the nature of God's creation in relationship to God himself. And it all started with a simple philosophical question. If before God created the universe, there was nothing but God, then where did God put the universe that he created? I'm going to let you think on that for a second. If before God created the universe, there was nothing in existence except God, then where would God put the universe once he created it? And this is kind of what philosophers do. They sit around and dream up questions that cannot be answered. Um, but, but these philosophers came up with an answer, and they called it Simpson. Simpson. Simpson is defined as a contracting of God's divine presence, a pulling back of God's divine presence to create space for something that is not God to exist. So in other words, he had to withdraw some of his very being so that he could create a space for the universe to exist and have some level of autonomy apart from God. So that God would be everywhere, but, but the universe wouldn't be God. It would be something distinct and, and autonomous from God. Well, this concept, this Zimzum, went on to explain a great deal of how God acts, um, especially the way he acts with the pinnacle of creation, the man and woman, um, to choose a path other than the path that God had for them, something we would call free will. For them to have any kind of a free will at all, God would have to Zimzum or contract himself to give Adam and Eve space to choose. So God... Uh, in essence, had the full power and ability to make Adam and Eve do everything he wanted, to basically be robots. But he didn't do that. Instead, he zimzumed. He withheld himself. Some people say God, in essence, handcuffed himself. Um, but God had to zimzum himself to create space for Adam and Eve to choose. So all through the scripture, um, every time the people of God choose poorly, the Jewish philosophers would note the way that God has to zimzum in that moment in order for his people to make 
mistakes. Now, please remember, the, this idea of zimzum is a philosophical idea, not a kind of a biblical articulated doctrine. But I really think that there is something about it. Um, and I especially think this idea of zimzum all through um, exists all through 1 Corinthians 13. So I'm going to read it again. I'm going to read this passage again. It's fairly short. Um, listen for the ways that love creates space. The way that love contracts to allow someone else um, to have autonomy. Um, and that that autonomy exists in the act of love itself. Love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. It is not irritable, and it keeps no record of being wrong. It does not rejoice in injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up, never loses faith, is always hopeful, and endures through every circumstance. Notice how it says it is not rejoice uh, about injustice. We have this tendency to see injustice and feel like we need to combat it and fight it. And instead, the definition of love almost creates space for it. Doesn't that sound terrible? But it, it allows the autonomy. It, it doesn't celebrate injustice. It hates injustice. It only celebrates when the truth wins out. But it still allows the autonomy of injustice. It's a hard concept. Can you, but can you hear how love, while being the, the, the most faithful and enduring force in the entire universe, also manages to do so without controlling and while offering the other true autonomy. This concept that in order to truly love one another, we have to create space for the other to be themselves. I mean, who hasn't cheered with joy as they scoot further and further away from a newly walking toddler so that the little one can grow more and more independent? Who hasn't felt the sense of accomplishment and excitement when you first let go of the back of your child's bike as they learn to ride on their own? Or who hasn't felt the anxious hope as you watch your child swim across the pool on their own for the very first time? Autonomy and independence is good, and we celebrate it. But that same autonomy and independence becomes much harder when you watch those same children make poor decisions. Or when they admit to mistakes that they've made. Or what about the spouse who's made the choice to end a marriage or the family member who decides to quit fighting a terminal disease? What about the friend who's addicted to drugs or the parent who refuses to acknowledge the pain that their abuse has caused? What about the person whose political viewpoint threatens all of the things that you hold dear? And what about you? creating the space that you need to examine the places where you've failed and hurt others or yourself. Zimzum might sound like a cute word, but believe me, it can be very painful. How do we love and still create space in scenarios like these? Situations where we think we know the answers or when our viewpoint is worlds away from the others. How do we create space and love well in those moments? Let's look back at our first reading one more time. Jesus replied, the most important commandment is this. Listen, O Israel, the Lord our God is the one and only Lord. And you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. The second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. No other commandment is greater than these. 
In these moments where we struggle to love, where we struggle to let the other have the space that they need to be different from us, to choose differently, let's commit to first remembering that our God is the one and only God. He's completely unique, and he has spent all of history creating space for us. Let's remember that the space that he created for us is the space where we're able to fail, where we're certainly able to fall, but also we're able to find him and his love for us. And it's only in that space that we learn to love him back. And as we learn to love him more and more, his love for us draws us into places where we learn to love ourselves in ways that make us so much better at loving others. So how do we respond to this? Um, I tease Esther all the time uh, because when we were dating, I said, I love you first. And she responded with, thank you. Uh, and I, uh, um, which still makes my heart hurt a little bit. Now, I, I normally stop the story right there. But um, Esther, if she's around, always like jumps in or yells from the other room. You gave me permission to say thank you, um, which is true. The, the actual um, way that this happened was I, knowing that we had not been together long enough for me to be saying this, explained um, that very reality to Esther. I said, um, I know we have not been together long enough for me to say this, and I don't want you to feel like you have to respond. Um, in fact, feel free to just say thank you, but I love you. Um, and taking me at my word, she said thank you. And Obviously, at 19 years old, I had no idea what I was doing, um, but I honestly believe that that night might have been the first time that I experienced Zimzum. Um, I had no desire to control or manipulate a response. I simply wanted her to know that I loved her. Uh, and in a weird way, I think that's a pretty good picture of the way God loves us. He comes quietly in a backwood town with no fanfare except for a few shepherds. He grows up as a carpenter well outside the central hub of power and action. He preaches and heals and sets people free and feeds the hungry and reveals true justice and compassion and holiness. He loves God and he loves people. And he demands nothing. He simply invites. And in the end, he hangs on a cross, screaming out, I love you, to a bunch of ragamuffins begging his father to forgive us. He's not leveraging power. He's not manipulating a response. He's offering us full autonomy. Jesus simply lays himself down as a love offering. And from this place of zimzum, he simply invites you to say thank you. So this morning I'd love to respond to this message first by saying thank you. Set aside some time today. Sing a song, pray a prayer. Sit at the window and admire the frigid, cold beauty of God's creation and wonder at how amazingly creative He is. But respond to God's invitation somehow. Even if you've been a Christian as long as you can remember, He's inviting you today and you should respond. He's, he's screaming out to you, I love you. And he, and he demands nothing but invites it. So say thank you to God. Don't listen to, to this message today about love and do that thing where you try to reduce it down to an action point that makes your life better immediately. Sometimes the right response is simply to worship God. 
And so first I ask you to do that today. The second way we'd love for you to respond to this message is to raise your capacity for loving others. Jesus said that we should love others the same amount we love ourselves. And frankly, our world needs us to be more loving. And the only way that we're going to love others better is if we increase our love for ourselves. And believe me, this isn't just wishy-washy self-help stuff. If the God of the universe, the maker of everything that is, has chosen to love you, has gone out of his gourd in love with you to the point that he would give his only son for you, then who in the world do you think you are to think you aren't worth loving? That is not okay. Come into alignment with God and love yourself because he first loved you. And finally, look for ways to zimzum someone in your life on this day of love. Find ways to love on the people right where they are while still allowing them to be fully and completely themselves. Maybe ask someone in your life how you might show them love. Or maybe even look for someone on Facebook that you completely disagree with and find a way to show them kindness without trying to convince them to see things the way you do. Above all else, listen to Mark 12 as it commands us to love God and love people. Not as a generic statement on how simple the Christian life is at its core, but rather commit yourself this morning to a lifelong journey of learning to love better and better and better every day. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know that we are only able to love because you first loved us. We're not loving at our core. We're wired for it. We desire it. We even desire to give it, but we're broken. But because you have loved us, because you have poured out your love for us, revealed it, proved it on the cross, and because, Jesus, you rose from the dead to overcome our greatest enemy, death, we know we have the power, because of your love for us, to love others, even to love ourselves. So, God, we ask that you would give us the grace to love well. Help us to look at all of our interactions from, from, from the way we look our children in the face to the way we say hello to someone in the grocery store to the comments we make on Facebook. Help us to look for ways to love in all of those things. When you told us to love God and love people, it was not just a way of saying, be nice. It's a way of saying, this should permeate the way you do everything. The way we act at work, the way we act with our family, the way we act out in public, the way we act with our kids, the way we act with our worst enemies. Love should undergird all of that. And that is an uphill battle. So God, we ask for your grace to be loving people. That would make us different. That would make us holy, set apart, unique. And so that's what we asked for. You said, be holy, be set apart as your Father is holy and set apart. What could make us more different than being people who are driven and motivated by love? So on this day that we celebrate this idea of love, 
Make us people who are driven and compelled by it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.